Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I am joined by Adele Merson, Justin Bowie and guest reporter Joanna Bremner to look at the latest in Scottish politics and how the decisions in Parliament affect you. A whistle-stop tour of talking points today, we'll talk about Nicola Sturgeon's shock appraisal of polarised politics in Scotland, We'll look at our own reporting in the past week on the concept of 20-minute neighbourhoods, an idea which, funnily enough, has polarised opinion. We'll talk about the big national conservatism jamboree in London, which saw right-wingers and more mainstream Tories rub along, while Jacob Rees-Mogg appeared to say the government gerrymandered the voting franchise and David Starkey appalled all decent people again. Closer to home, some interesting interventions from politicians, including an odd one on former Transport Minister Jenny Gilruth and delayed train works over Christmas. Adele is here, joining us live from the fine city of Aberdeen. Hello. We'll get stuck into all that good stuff there in a bit. But let's start with 20-minute neighbourhoods. On Monday, my political reporting colleague Justin Bowie published an article on this concept, which is the Scottish Government's attempt to make sure people can travel easily on foot, by bike, bus, that sort of thing, and gain access to essentials. This being the end times of popular politics, it clearly ended up pitting conspiracy theorists against green campaigners and everyone else who just wants to get a bus to the hospital. In England, entire campaign groups are currently railing against the similarly badged 15-minute cities. Up here, Brotty Ferry was held up as a perfect model of this concept in Scotland, so we followed it up with a video walkthrough on the ground courtesy of Joanna Bremner. Joanna and Justin swapped notes at the end of it all and talked it through for us. So I have been taking a look at 20-minute neighbourhoods over the past week. I wrote a story on Monday, which looks at the idea and the sort of policy behind it. 20-minute neighbourhoods, for those who are unaware, are a sort of conceptual urban planning idea that you should be able to access all key services you need within around 10 to 20 minutes. So shops and supermarkets, GPs, schools, restaurants and bars, gyms and all the things you would use most of the week. I spoke to some academic experts and urban planning experts on this who gave me their thoughts. And one expert from Dundee Uni- University cited Brotty Ferry, obviously just in the outskirts of Dundee, as the perfect example of a 20-minute neighbourhood. He said it has all those vital services you need. Our transport and environment correspondent, Joanna, went out and brought a ferry the other day and spoke to locals and took a walk around the streets just to kind of sample whether it is indeed that 20-minute neighbourhood. Joanna, what were locals saying to you and... Does Broughty Ferry match up as that perfect example of a 20-minute neighbourhood? Well, Broughty Ferry residents, or the ferry as it is affectionately known, are quite a big fan of where they live. And there was an overwhelming positive response um, about Broughty Ferry and the services that you can get there. And I took myself on a little 20-minute walk as well around Broughty Ferry, and I've found multiple pharmacies, GPs, um, tons of restaurants, pubs, all the things you basically want to access. So yeah, it's quite an affluent area. So the folk that live there are quite lucky. They've got all this um, to access close by. I think that it is a great example of a 20 minute neighborhood. And I think being able to walk to get all these places in less than 20 minutes or cycle, I think that is a great example of that. Obviously one aspect of 20 minute neighborhoods, which has come up a lot is this idea that 
it's kind of seen as more of a conspiracy theory, to be honest, but there are people who earnestly believe this to be true. This idea that, you know, people are going to be locked into these areas, they're not going to be able to leave, they're not going to be able to use their cars. All sounds very dystopian, all sounds very weird, but it is something that's gained a bit of traction. I was wondering, did you get any sense of that from the locals? Was there any anger around 20-minute neighbourhoods or was it all pretty positive? I think from walking around in Brotty Ferry itself, people had a very positive reaction, but I have seen this very negative reaction online. People saying it's the beginning of the end, another way to brainwash and control people. I don't know if you spotted any of those comments on the Courier Facebook page, but there's a lot of people that weren't happy when we started writing about 20-minute neighbourhoods. But I think that this is kind of a hangover from the COVID pandemic. I think people weren't happy with their movement being limited um, even though that was sort of in order to save people's lives. Um, so I think that's mentality's kind of remained and people are scared that they're going to be limited um, with their movement and they won't be able to head out as they usually would. But just to clarify, 20-minute neighbourhoods does not mean you can't get in your car. It doesn't mean there's going to be military at either end of the 20-minute zone stopping you from leaving. It's just an idea that would make it easy that all the essential services are close by so you don't need to use your car, but you still can if you want to. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's perhaps sparked a lot of this is that 20-minute neighbourhoods have become very closely linked with uh, low-emission zones and low-traffic neighbourhoods. So low-emissions in particular have got a lot of focus, and the idea is that older cars and cars that you know emit too much you know CO2 are not going to be allowed in areas like city centres. It's caused a lot of a kind of backlash in Glasgow in particular. It's an interesting one. People who use their cars say that they're being punished and penalised and say that, you know, it's, it's just inconvenient. You know, if, if rail travel or bus travel is not particularly great in their area, why can't they use their cars? Why should they have to buy a new one? But then environmental campaigners and even people who live in these areas will sometimes turn around and argue, well, wait a minute, you know, you want your air to be clean, you want your environment to be healthy. Why should you have to necessarily put up with people traveling in in these old cars so I, I think it's become very very closely bound up with that you know speaking to academics was Brotty Ferry obviously was cited as this perfect example but as you say it's quite an affluent well-off area and a lot of the time the areas within cities you know like Dundee or Aberdeen that wouldn't perhaps be classed as 20-minute neighborhoods or maybe more in the outskirts that you know sometimes there's a lot of poverty and deprivation in these areas they don't have proper transport links as a local resident in Brotty Ferry and somebody who will be in Dundee a lot, do you think that's the case? You know, are there certain areas that are going to need a lot of help if they're going to upgrade to be 20-minute neighbourhoods? Yes, I think there are a lot of areas in Dundee and in Aberdeen as well which would need a lot of work in order to turn into this kind of ideal 20-minute neighbourhood. I think the issue is that it's a vicious cycle and because these places don't have bars, they don't have restaurants, they don't maybe have uh, GPs, pharmacies are shutting, that sort of thing, then people will drive elsewhere so that the business isn't coming in. And then because they aren't using the services in that area, other services are dying off. So I think that there would be a lot of work needed to kind of turn these areas into a 20-minute neighbourhood. Yeah, and I think one big problem at the moment, I spoke to this with experts about it as well, is that it's going to take a lot of investment. So if your area doesn't have the correct services, well, that requires more bus links, perhaps more, more rail links as well. It requires building shops. It requires new housing. If people aren't going to be able to use their cars as, as often, if they're getting encouraged out of their cars, you need good cycle lanes. You need adequate areas for people to walk as well. And, you know, we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis at the moment. If councils are going to want to invest in this, they're going to need a lot, lot of money from the government. 
but many councils have obviously faced real-term funding cuts as well. It is something that the Scottish Government have been consulting on. Uh, there's a consultation that's ongoing at the moment where they want to hear views on this. They also want to bring it into rural areas as well, but they have kind of acknowledged it's going to be a much bigger challenge and they've described it more as living locally because in some rural areas, you can't just necessarily get rid of your car. It's kind of a way of life. And even proponents of the 20-minute neighbourhood were saying that to me as well. Do you get any sense of that at all? I mean, obviously you, you were out in Brotty Ferry, but there are areas out there, you know, even just beyond Brotty Ferry into Angus where, you know, it's not quite extremely rural compared to, say, the Highlands and Islands. But to get around without a, a car would still be extremely difficult. It's absolutely an ongoing challenge for folk to leave their cars behind. I don't think it's easy for anybody. And as somebody who grew up in the countryside, I know it's very challenging to not use your car, to not rely on your car. So I think it is something that people are going to have to kind of work really hard at. Public transport is going to be necessary. There's going to be improvements to that, hopefully, that would help people do that. And also there's lots of active travel links going on in Angus and elsewhere, which hopefully will help people cycle if they can. But this isn't an option for everybody. That's the issue. Do you think that sparks some of this backlash then? You know, people who need to use their cars, who perhaps don't have good access to services, there's perhaps a lack of trust in government, a lack of trust that there's going to be the investment needed. I think absolutely. I think people still really rely on their cars in those areas and so they're afraid that they're going to be cut off maybe, that they're going to have no way of getting places and if you can't cycle somewhere, you won't be allowed to go anywhere. I think that might be a fear from some folk as well. There's a lot of different comments coming into our Facebook and on the website as well that are just really worried about feeling trapped. So I think what is the priority is to kind of remind people that's that's not the aim of 20-minute neighbourhoods. Yeah, and one thing, you know, experts I spoke to talked about as well was this idea that if not done correctly, there is this sort of risk of widening inequality where you improve things a little bit in, in some well-off areas like Brody Ferry, and like some city centres, but the risk is that other places are perhaps left behind. Was there a sense of that at all when you were out and about? You know, were there any people who, you know, people were in Brotty Ferry for the day and perhaps travelling in, people who had any doubts? Or was, was the sentiment in the street pretty much entirely positive? There was a lot of positivity, I've got to say, in Brotty Ferry. People are usually quite a happy bunch there. But I did uh, speak to a guy from Monty Feath who says that although it's a bit of a further cycle for him, um, he does cycle into Brotty Ferry and he loves the services there and he thinks it's grand but of course there are areas in Dundee and around the country where there just aren't services packed into such a tight-knit space like Brody Ferry it is its own kind of bubble in a way same with St Andrews that it's these affluent areas where you can get everything you need to in a walk but that isn't the case for everywhere. Yeah I think it's worth noting as well that the 20-minute neighbourhood ideas it's not exclusively Scottish or English some of our listeners may have heard of it from abroad described as a 15-minute city, and it's quite a common thing, you know, I suppose in European cities. Any of our listeners who have been to mainland you know, continental Europe will know whether you're in Paris or Barcelona or Copenhagen. A lot of these cities do have very walkable areas, you know, good cycle routes, very, very strong transport links as well. So it's, it's quite a European thing in that regard. Um, I mean, I don't know, Joanna, have you experienced that at all when you've been abroad and you've maybe been in a big city and thought, you know, wow, this is like really really good to travel around in compared to home um yeah i think paris is one example of that where you can access everything in a walk and everyone's walking around paris although you do get sore feet after a while and it is kind of very appealing so i'm always surprised when i see such a negative response when if people just think it works in italy it works in france why can't we try it here 
Yeah, and I think that walking point's a very good one, you know, getting sore feet, because obviously one of the main incentives of 20-minute neighbourhoods as well is this idea of active travel and of healthy living as well. So it's that idea that if people are walking more often, if they're cycling more often, it's also good for their health, and you know that actually can't be a bad thing. But yeah, it's a very interesting topic, and that government consultation is ongoing at the moment. If you want to take a look at both stories on 20 Minute Neighbourhoods, they're both available on the Courier website. And on the Press and Journal, we also take a look at how this will impact rural areas, as we've discussed. And it will be interesting to see what direction um, this policy takes going forward as the government consultation eventually comes to an end. You're in Aberdeen, Adele. Does this concept make sense to you living in a city like that? Yeah, it definitely does. If I just think the fact I used to live in the the suburbs and obviously it depends what suburb you're in some of them have better facilities than others but i noticed a big change when i moved closer to the city center um in terms of yeah just quality of life really it's just it's really enjoyable to go out your door and just walk everywhere and be able to reach everything on foot and not have the stress of being stuck in and right now in Aberdeen as well there's incredibly bad traffic roadworks you know you don't have to do any of that and it, you do you feel you feel better for it Hmm. And I find you go into a lot more local places and you spend more money. But but as Justin sort of alluded to there, I think it's easy to do that when you're in a nice neighbourhood that's got all these lovely cafes yeah. and shops. And I think the government has a big task on its hands to kind of replicate many of these across the country. And as we've seen yeah. there, especially in rural areas where it just seems hard to think how this would actually work at all. Yeah, the whole, the whole concept's interesting because... Even if you look on the Scottish government's website and you look at the consultation on the 20-minute neighbourhoods, it's there. The consultation is running um, just now as we speak, so anyone can can get involved with that. But there's basically a wee caveat to it saying, obviously, this doesn't apply out in the out in the sticks because clearly, how can it? Um, we've written many stories about the difficulty of reaching essential services um, if you're anywhere outside the central belt or one of the larger cities anyone listening to this in the borders or Dumfrieshire or the highlands the islands they'll be probably yelling into the thin air at the moment saying you know it's an hour's drive to the nearest supermarket so and there's no bus how, how does the government actually meet the needs of people that aren't already just there I mean there's, there's a free market as well people aren't just going to suddenly set up businesses close to a tiny hamlet in the middle of Caithness. Yeah, I think people in these sort of communities, it'll probably seem quite a baffling idea to them right now, because as you've said there, I've I've lost track of how many stories I've done where, you know, women can't even give birth close to, even slightly close to home in some cases, in in the likes of Caithness and and Murray. And I think this will just seem (laughs) like, let's first try and get those essential services delivered before we start you know talking about these kind of ideas it's interesting it almost seems like as with a lot of things in society like they were trying to go back to maybe how things were before you know when the high street was more of a was more of a feature in communities and we're almost trying to yeah replicate what we had and undo the damage of of how you know we have created these kind of suburbs just on the edge of of cities and and not really thought about what facilities were actually providing for the people there and yeah Mm. it's almost like going back going back in time a little bit but trying to unravel all the the bad things that we've done yeah yeah i mean i'm talking to you so i'm obviously thinking about our old friend union street in aberdeen and i'm casting my 
my memory back, I grew up in the Northeast and my last bus home to the Sticks was about 5.30. So, you know, not exactly great. I wasn't even that far from Aberdeen. And um, everyone always moans about the death of the high street. But of course, during my lifetime, all that people seemed to do was build more and more uh, shopping centres away from Union Street. And that's the same no matter what city you're, you're, you're currently in listening to. Um, and of course, uh, our... our our use of cars is not just because things are far away, it's because um, in winter it's not very nice out there. So you don't really want to be walking and cycling everywhere. It's another wee problem that I don't think any government can fix. Yeah, I mean, Italy doesn't have that same issue. It's, it's very nice to go wandering out on a piazza any time of the year. But yeah, yeah. here it's, it's a much bigger challenge. Yeah. There was some polarised comments uh, in, in the Facebook comment. It's, uh, I mean, some of it was just absolutely bizarre. There was lots of use of phrases that no one really understands, like neo-Marxist. Um, so let's just stick with that polarisation, uh, which brings us to Nicola Sturgeon, who's back in the news and social media and all over the place. She wrote a piece for The Guardian just before um, this recording, saying she underestimated the polarised nature of Scottish politics. Where has she been, Adele? Yes, I find this very strange. For, for one thing, if I remember correctly, she actually admitted she'd become a polarising figure when she was actually announcing yeah. that she was standing down. So so she seemed to have a little bit of awareness then that she had become a polarising figure, but is now quite surprised by it. I think many people out there would argue that she has actually driven a lot of polarisation in Scottish politics in one way or another. We just have to look at some of the statements that she's made. She, you know, she came under fire for, for that infamous I detest the Tories and everything they stand for or something like that and and they're obviously the second biggest party at Holyrood so although they're, they are her political rivals I think probably could have done with realising that there's a lot of voters out there who I, I know she, she kind of clarified her comments at the time saying she didn't mean Tory voters or anything like that but I think it would be easy for, for voters to be potentially offended by that and I think mm. a really recent example would be the gender reform debate, where I think in her Guardian piece, she says something like, you know, we have to accept there's there's valid points on both sides of the debate and allow good faith to enter it. But yet, only just months ago, I think many people would argue she showed quite an unwillingness to really listen to the views of those who had concerns around self-ID. And they could perhaps argue there was no good faith extended to them, mm. you know, in that in that arena. So I think, yeah, some people would find that quite quite strange that she that she hasn't realised that. Yeah, yeah, there was a sort of watching someone realise something that others had been able to see, and she's not unique in this. We've had lots of opportunities to be polarised. Let's face it, whether it was an independence referendum or the Brexit vote, all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, probably too much is said about polarising nature of actual votes because that's the whole point. You have to pick one or the other. But yeah, the 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 debate that surrounded a lot of the other policies has become quite a problem, and that's what I think you were mentioning there when. Nicola Sturgeon was stepping down saying that she couldn't have any input in the big debates of any type because people were using her as a sort of lightning rod for anger. Um, she does point in that column as well, though, that she had no idea that things were about to go so south for the SNP when she stood down. And um, that's obviously something that's going to carry on for some time yet. The police investigation is still underway into SNP finances. Which brings us to SNP minister in the headlights, Jenny Gilruth. We reported this uh, from Holyrood on Thursday. 
Adele, I wonder if you can help me explain what this train stooshy is all about. It got very, it got fiery in yesterday's First Minister's questions. The the row all really centres around, there was real works that needed done. I think it was electrification work between Edinburgh Haymarket and West Lothian. And it would have caused about around eight days of disruption from Boxing Day of last year. Hmm. So... Jenny Garuth, who's currently Education Secretary, but was at the time Transport Minister, asked for the works to be postponed. And that has now led the Tories to claim she had broke she has broken the ministerial code in that decision. They say she gave preferential treatment to her constituents as she represents Midfife and Glenrothes. So Hamza Youssef responded saying that actually they're clearly they're clearly going on the argument that her decisions benefited the whole network because you know that like benefit people in say areas like the northeast and on other places he it was a bit of a strange yeah he he said he would probe it but just a minute or so before has said he'd kind of done initial look into it and he and he was quite content so a bit of a strange one it almost seemed like he was sort of prejudging how that would go but um yeah, quite an unusual row. I mean, what what the Tories are saying is that I think they got given uh, FOIs and, and they're saying that delaying the rail works actually caused more disruption at a later date because the idea was if it took place over Christmas, that's when people aren't, are on holiday and not going to work and stuff in the same way. And that actually meant that there was weeks of rail works later in the mm. year, uh, sorry, early in the following year, <laughs> and that that cost taxpayers an extra million pounds i think was the figure yeah so, so it's, it's a, mm, bit un, a bit of an unusual one yeah msp tries to help local constituency shock i mean you would never catch anyone else doing that I, while you were talking about that i'm reminded i think rishi sunak who listeners may know about but he he was he not accused of maybe allowing some leveling up funds to go to the more affluent areas including ones that he may represent as well I'm sure that there was a bit of a stooshy there. Definitely levelling up funds going to to affluent parts of England where Conservatives were um, quite happy to to mop up some local popular support. So, I mean, what do you think? I mean, are people correct to sort of say that she she was maybe giving preferential treatment to people in her backyard? Or is that just someone saying, well, people always moan if there's disruption at Christmas and Boxing Day. Why don't we delay it? Yeah, I guess there's no winning in this really because... If those works had gone ahead on Boxing Day, there could potentially, more than likely, would have been a, a reaction to that. And perhaps the same people that are criticising the decision that was taken would also have been criticising that. So it's like in much in politics, it's, it's almost like you can't win and the opposition yeah. will go for you, I guess, whatever you do. But on the flip side, <laughs> I'm sitting on the fence here, but yeah, on the flip side, I guess these things are important because... When, it, when you get to the stage of being a minister or a cabinet secretary, you are put in that position to represent yeah. everybody and the greater good, I guess. And so you could argue that it should at least be looked into to make mm. sure that it's all that it's all fine and above board. All right. Well, we, we've mentioned um, Rishi Sunak there and Conservatives. I'm going to sort of head south a little bit now, um, which we've not done for a, a while. But I'm talking here about the National Conservatism Conference, um, which was held just a few days ago, and what an interesting thing that was. A real dose of right-wing, libertarian, US-style chat, but also people like Michael Gove lending possibly a bit more mainstream credibility for British Conservatives. 
but them rubbing along quite awkwardly at times. There was a lot of chat about cultural Marxism, a phrase that anyone who uses it just clearly doesn't understand, and no one else that hears it understands. Um, always has a hint of disapproval of anything from, I think, equality to trying to knock a pound off a ticket to the municipal swimming pool. I don't. It, it's one of those things that just people say. But in amongst all the chat, we were told that um, we need more native-born babies. Um, that's the team that brought you um, Brexit and immigration control. So you know what to do. Women of Britain, neo-Marxism, that was mentioned a lot. Again, a phrase no one understands. Mandatory military service, paganism, too much fetish for the nature of this country. And also the word, which I will say only once, because I've already banned it on all, all my social media feeds, so I'd never get to see it anymore. It's that four-letter word, woke. A term I hate. It's so meaningless. Um, that that came up a lot. The cream of the crop, though, for me, I think, Adele, was Jacob Rees-Mogg, who effectively admitted that voter ID uh, was a gerrymandering exercise to help the Conservatives, which he says backfired. And then David Starkey, the historian, possibly the last human on earth that I would like to have dinner with, he managed to suggest social justice campaigners are jealous of the, the, the impact that the Holocaust has in people's minds, which was roundly condemned and quite rightly. Um, I don't know, have you, did you watch any of the, the goings-on around the National Conservatism Conference? Because it was quite something. Yeah, I saw bits and, and pieces. As you said mm. there, I think the fact that I was reading something that said in the past, I think it's mainly been sort of backbenchers that have gone along to it, if mm. anyone from the Conservatives. I think what stood out to me was the fact that in the past, perhaps it seemed it was more backbench Conservative MPs who attended this event. But this time round, you had, as you said there, Michael Gove, and there was also Home Secretary Suella Braverman. And yeah, that's interesting when you consider, as you've just listed there, some of the topics under discussion. Now, they weren't taking part in those, but they were at the event. And mm -hmm. I think it perhaps, yeah, it would make some people perhaps concerned about the direction that, but because these people, you know, are, yeah. are high up in the party, whether this kind of culture war style, like kind of what we see in the US, whether that could be something that's that's coming for British politics. I think that aspect. So it's a, so in some ways you can dismiss it as just, I guess, a kind of more fringe, slightly yeah. extreme. Not so much fringe anymore, though, is it? Two people there are giving it a level of legitimacy, I guess. It's almost like you could say it's polarizing, which is the theme running through this entire half an hour. On that note... It has been a while, but we, we need to wrap this all up now with a with an award, an anti-prize for the spark that created the, the stoosh of the week, a dunce's cap of political idiocy. So the first stoosh of the week for a long time was going to go to David Starkey, but that's just too easy and he's not a politician. Really, the award should go to those who enabled him to be there in the first place and possibly one face that really epitomises the whole thing. So step forward, Jacob Rees-Mogg, in your gerrymandering chat and collect your award on the way out. Stoosh of the week. Just to be clear, the award is open to left-wing conferences, nationalists, liberals, and all other tribes of political thought. We're not picky here. I just think anything um, with David Starkey and Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is it spells trouble. That's it for this week. Thanks to Justin Bowie and Joanna Bremner for their chat about 20-minute neighbourhoods. Adele Merson and producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.